Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. When we first met her, she was a war crimes victim intent on concealing her identity while searching for her family who had been rounded up by ISIS. Five years later, Nadia Murad is a Nobel Peace Prize winner fighting to hold ISIS accountable. The morning that I won the Nobel Prize, I asked my husband, Abid, to see if there was a way I could decline because the prize would make my life difficult. But fate and God sometimes bring you something so that you can stop crimes and help others. Right-wing populism is making a not-so-subtle comeback in Europe. We found an interesting example in Hungary, where a government program intends to stimulate birth rates by taking over fertility clinics, offering free treatments, giving cash loans, and even subsidizing minivans for young married couples who become new parents. Do cowboys still exist? We found generations of them ranching and riding in Utah. The Wright family is the first family of American rodeo, world champions who can make the roughest ride look like a ballet. Are you kind of dancing with the horse? I like to think you are. I dance a lot better with a horse than I do with my wife. <laughs> I ain't got no rhythm. <laughs> I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. 
Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. She wore a scarf in our first interview because she did not want you to know her. She was a humble 21-year-old from a poor farm family. Her dream was to own a hair salon in her village of nearly 2,000. But that was before the massacre. She didn't want to be on 60 Minutes, but she needed the world to know what ISIS did, the murder, the rape, the genocide of her people. Nearly six years ago in Iraq, we discovered this hesitant, frightened woman. We did not imagine that her scarf concealed not only her identity, but also a fierce invincibility, which would lead her four years after our interview to the highest honor the world has to give. We found her here, among refugees who survived the invasion of the ISIS terrorist army. Her people are Yazidis, a minority in northern Iraq that is poor, persecuted, and bound by faith to its revered Mount Sinjar. In 2014, ISIS invaded. Two months later, we came to report on the atrocities of the self-described Islamic State. Of course, no country on earth recognizes that state. But if it had a border, this would be it. Beyond that border was the Yazidi homeland, where the faithful practice a religion that predates Islam by 3,000 years. In ISIS's perversion of the Muslim faith, the Yazidis were non-believers, condemned to slavery and death. On Friday, August 15th, at 11.30 a.m., they entered our village and told us all to come to the school. There the women and kids were put upstairs and the men downstairs. What happened to you at that point? As we were entering the school, I was with one of my brothers. There we saw a bulldozer, and I asked my brother, why is there a bulldozer here? He replied, to throw dirt on the bodies when they're done killing. Her brother was right. The Yazidis, about half a million, were defenseless civilians. Thousands of men and elder women were executed. Boys, age seven and older, were forced into the ISIS army. What happened next? They started loading up 150 girls in four dump trucks. More than 3,000 women and girls as young as nine were trucked into slavery. She says she was sold and raped, sold and raped again, and then gang-raped after a failed escape. What about the other members of your family? I have no idea where my brothers are. I want them all to return, but most of all, I just want my mother. <laughs> Tell them, I just want my mother. She seemed broken. But as our interview went on, her confidence grew. As though she came to realize she wasn't speaking for herself, she was speaking for her people. Months later, she settled in Germany, joined a human rights group, and campaigned for justice. In 2018, the world learned her name because Nadia Murad was awarded 
the Nobel Peace Prize. The 2018 Peace Prize was meant to expose atrocities women suffer in war. The honor was shared with Dennis Mukwege, whose hospital treats the sexually assaulted in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I'm curious why you chose to speak with us five years ago. At the beginning, rape was a big shame for me and for others to speak about, because it would have remained a shame on you, on your family, and on your people. The biggest incentive that made me talk was those left behind, including my mother and sisters. I knew what was happening to those in the captivity of ISIS. Nadia Murad was captive nine days when the last man who bought her left a door unlocked. Kind-hearted strangers smuggled her across the Islamic State line. She became a UN human rights ambassador, began learning English, wrote a memoir, and vowed to see ISIS in court. But for that, she needed a lawyer. I met Nadia after a colleague called me and said, I have a new case for you. And I said, no thanks, I'm busy. And he said, there's just an extraordinary young woman I want you to meet, give me an hour. It didn't take an hour for leading human rights attorney Amal Clooney to take the case. I saw it as a test of the international system. It was so egregious because it involved ISIS, it involved a clear case of genocide, it involved sexual slavery to, at a scale that we haven't seen in modern times. And I thought, if the UN can't act in this case, then what does the international rule of law even mean? By 2015, not one free Yazidi remained in their homeland. This wasn't just war. By international law, the executions, rape, and kidnapping were war crimes. This was the same dilemma um, that the world had after um, the atrocities of Nazi Germany. And it's the U.S. under President Truman and President Roosevelt that said, no, we have to have trials because there must be a judicial record of the atrocities committed by the Nazis. Because today you do have people denying that there were gas chambers. And, and what do you have to point to? You can go back and say, well, there are 4,000 documents that were submitted as exhibits in the Nuremberg trials. And the Yazidis deserve nothing less than that. And there might be similar stacks of evidence of the crimes against the Yazidis. But Clooney feared securing it was a race against time. You had mass graves that weren't secured, where the Yazidis knew their relatives were buried and nobody was exhuming them. And also, I noticed that witnesses were becoming more and more reluctant to speak out as time went by. So, you know, there was only so much we could do as a small team of lawyers. And we said, this is the responsibility of the UN, and it's the responsibility of the most powerful body within the UN, which is the Security Council. Had you ever heard of the UN Security Council? Never. In 2015, just a year after we met her, Nadia Murad asked the Security Council to hold ISIS accountable. I've seen what they've done to boys and girls. All those who commit the crime of trafficking and genocide need to be brought to justice. The Security Council voted to approve a first step. In 2017, it created an investigative team to collect evidence of ISIS's crimes in Iraq. The team began exhuming some of the 202 mass graves that are known. Now the question is whether the evidence will ever be heard. Iraqi courts are convicting thousands of ISIS suspects of terrorism, but none has been tried for the crime of genocide against the Yazidis. 
Small pockets of ISIS fighters remain in Syria and Iraq, but U.S. and Iraqi troops have shattered ISIS as a cohesive military force. Is that justice? Absolutely not. You know, if you speak to Yazidi witnesses, victims, survivors, they will say, it doesn't help me if somebody's killed in a drone strike. In terms of justice, that means something very different. That means being able to be in a courtroom and look their abusers in the eye and tell the world what happened, what ISIS did to them. And that hasn't happened yet. It has happened before in other atrocities. Last year, a U.N.-backed court in Cambodia convicted two former officials of genocide 40 years after the Khmer Rouge murdered 1.7 million. Beginning in the 1990s, U.N. war crime trials were held for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. But Iraq is not a member of the International Criminal Court and has not agreed to war crime trials of its own. What we would like to see is an openness by the Iraqis to actually have international judges be involved in these trials, potentially international prosecutors. There are different ways of designing it. You know, the Iraqi government could enter into a treaty with the UN, or there could be an international court, and the Iraqis could agree to transfer those responsible for international crimes to that court. Today, peace, if not justice, has settled into the folds of Mount Sinjar. Four days after accepting the Nobel, Nadia Murad returned with the Yazidi man she would soon marry and two replicas of her peace prize. This is what the absence of justice looks like. The demands of the desperate focused on a woman abducted at 21 and now returning bearing the weight of a seven-ounce medal. The morning that I won the Nobel Prize, I asked my husband, Abid, to see if there was a way I could decline because the prize would make my life difficult. But fate and God sometimes bring you something so that you can stop crimes and help others. Has the Nobel Prize changed your hopes for the future? Now, people look at me like I can rebuild Sinjar, that I can bring more help for the victims, and that I can take care of the orphans. But without support, this is not going to happen by just having a Nobel. In her village, she said, I have left a Nobel Prize at the Iraqi parliament, I hope Iraq, after 4,000 years, will recognize Yazidis. We have always been second-class citizens. <laughs> Later, she walked to a site that held the answer to the desperate question she asked in our first interview. The long green depression in the earth was a mass grave, her mother's grave. She said... Dear mother, my poor mother. You left a replica of your Nobel Peace Prize at your mother's grave. Yeah. What do you think she would have thought of that? I wonder if she knows that I have talked to the world about her silent death, the killing of her six sons and her two nieces. I often feel that what I have been doing 
is because of her. I wish that she would know about it. She may be happy because the world now knows what ISIS has done. This is the school where Nadia Murad was separated from her family. Five years later, the murdered and missing are present, but unaccounted for. Altogether, Nadia, how many members of your family were murdered? We were 48 brothers, mothers, sisters, nephews, and nieces in our family. Nine were killed and three are missing. The rest, who were rescued, now live in refugee camps. There isn't much for refugees to return to. Yazidi homes were wrecked or looted of everything but memories. Today, Nadia Murad is navigating without a chart, steering by the constellation of her people's dreams. An accidental leader, facing questions she cannot answer. Will they have homes? Will there be justice? It's estimated as many as 5,000 Yazidis were murdered, 6,000 abducted. Nearly 4,000 are missing still. With no international trials scheduled for these crimes, evidence from mass graves is being entombed in Baghdad where it will wait until the world that hears her voice shares her courage. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. For a country of fewer than 10 million and dwindling, Hungary has been in the news a lot recently. And as we head toward the 2020 U.S. presidential election, you can expect to hear more about Hungary. It has become a striking example for how a society can slink from democracy into autocracy. It doesn't happen overnight. We reported on this shift last March, focusing on a program which on its face seems perfectly reasonable, designed as it is to stimulate birth rate. The Hungarian government has taken over most private fertility clinics and also gives away cash, loans, and even, get this, subsidies to buy minivans to young couples who become new parents. It's an effort, as the slogan goes, to keep Hungary Hungarian. But peel back the layers and it reveals something else entirely. Social engineering designed to yield only a certain kind of Hungarian baby. It's an almost relentlessly pleasant Saturday outside of Budapest. The Skansen Park has been transformed into a festival of good, clean, all-ages fun. Balloons and comic books and piggybacks. It's the annual celebration sponsored by Hungary's Association of Large Families. And for the first time, there's a mass wedding. Five couples embarking on marriage in front of hundreds of their closest friends. Katalin Novak, Hungary's Minister of State for Family and Youth Affairs, is on hand as well, spreading the government's message of clan and country. It is good to share their joy, she says, which is why the government protects the marriage of man and woman and why we protect the families and children in Hungary. 
She spearheads what is termed the Family Protection Action Plan. This sweeping government program was unveiled last year at a cost of $2.5 billion. That's 5% of Hungary's GDP, four times what the country spends on military. The plan offers couples who have three kids a subsidy to get one of these minivans. I mean, the car sounds nice, but <laughs> two, three kids, I, I, mean, I mean, I think that's, that's all we can handle right now. I mean, even in imaginary terms. <laughs> it's not just minivans they're offering. Almost like a prize list at an arcade, the mere promise to have one child gets you a $30,000 loan. Rates are slashed after two kids and forgiven after three. Commit to having four kids or more? Mom doesn't have to pay income tax for life. Terms and conditions apply, and the plan isn't open to everyone. But it does address a huge problem that the country faces, a low birth rate in the hemorrhaging of people. Hungary's population, now under 10 million, has declined for 37 straight years. It's a curious place, Hungary, a mix of Eastern and Western Europe. Its capital, Budapest, is a regal city divided by the Danube, Buda on one side and Pest on the other. It trades on its classic grandeur and nods to the past. Budapest has long been a city of sensual pleasures, and its thermal baths, taking the waters as it's called, has adjusted for the times. The place has a language and cuisine like no other. And for centuries, Hungary has been a sort of territorial football, passed around among Turks and Germans, Habsburgs and communists. After World War II, Hungary was part of the Soviet bloc. In 1989, Hungary set off a chain of events that brought down the Berlin Wall. In May, Hungary began cutting down the barbed wire, becoming the first East Bloc country with an open border. Hungary might have been the first country to puncture the Iron Curtain, but 30 years later, it is at the vanguard of the European right. So much so that Hungarians we asked struggled to characterize the country's current form of government. Do you not feel you're living in a democracy right now? Well, it's a tricky question because uh, by law and regulation, it's a democratic country. Anna Donat is a Hungarian member of the European Parliament and a leader of the Momentum Party a political upstart which opposes the government that's now been in power for 10 years. It would be too easy to say that, that it's a dictatorship. It's not. It's clearly not. Um, we can say that it's an autocratic regime, but autocracy is a scale. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban certainly doesn't see himself as an autocrat. He popularized a term to describe his regime, illiberal democracy. You heard that right illiberal democracy. It's a system governed by a forceful ruler with a public that won't or can't fall out of step. The European Union has deep concerns about Hungary's membership. It recently voted to sanction the country, accusing Orban of systematically rolling back democracy. And it has leveled charges that read like a sort of strongman's playbook. Redrawing voting districts, rewriting the Constitution, restricting freedom of speech, and stacking the courts. Orban's policies, though, have been delivered not as brutally forceful blows, but as well-placed jabs. Gradual, subtle, and 
arguably above the belt. Orban and his manipulative maneuvers provoke outrage among opponents, but also draw a measure of grudging respect. How do you describe Viktor Orban? He's a genius in one hand. Genius. He's a political strategist. You take serious his power. Uh, well, actually, you can feel it in your skin in everyday life in Hungary. You feel that his power. There is a higher power, a big brother, watching you everywhere, listening what you are saying. Orban's creeping control is presented as reasonable public policy. On the face of it, the family protection plan does make it easier for families to have kids. But it doesn't take much to shade into something darker. Just listen to the Speaker of Hungary's parliament at a conference last September. In Europe, those who propagate that having children is a private matter are serving the culture of death, he says. Countries with declining population are becoming houses of coffins and not cradles. That sounds very dystopian, very dramatic. Well, there's... Um... You're right, and it's absolutely horrifying. And me, as a young woman who just got married and want to start a family, I'm sorry, but I don't want to accept that my prime minister, my government, the state wants to tell me what kind of family and how I should start with, and they are actually blaming me that I'm 32 and I don't have a kid yet, Do and they that? said that I'm supporting the culture of death, whatever it means. Uh, Actually, this makes us really, really angry. And she highlights a glaring irony in all this. The same government that strenuously tries to boost population also goes to extraordinary lengths to keep non-Hungarians out. In 2015, hundreds of thousands of refugees and migrants, most from the Middle East, passed through Hungary. They were told they were not welcome to stay. We must state that we do not want to be diverse and do not want to be mixed, Orban said in a speech last year. We do not want our color, traditions, and national culture to be mixed with those of others. We do not want to be a diverse country. Peter Kreko, a social psychologist, is head of the Political Capital Institute, a Budapest think tank. He says that though Hungary is overwhelmingly white, Orban paints migrants as the enemy, a threat to Hungary's homogeneity. The story is being that refugees and migrants are all around. They are stabbing the people. They are raping the women. They are uh, killing everyone. There is no rule of law. How does this new family protection plan, how does that fit into Orban's overall strategy? Uh, how does it fit in one sentence? Uh, we don't want migrants. We want, want Hungarian mothers to uh, give birth to more children. This is how we want to solve the demographic crisis. For Prime Minister Orban, it reduces to a simple concept. Procreation, not immigration. He did what President Trump promised to do. In 2015, Orban slammed Hungary's gates shut, building essentially a border wall, a $500 million fence 180 miles long on the southern border with Serbia. Attention, attention. I'm warning you that you're at the Hungarian border. Laszlo Torotskayi, the mayor of the small border town of Ashotkhalom, was one of the loudest voices urging the Hungarian government to erect the fence. When he got his wish, he became something of a populist cult hero. This is about preserving 
we keep hearing European values. What does that For mean? Me, um, the, the European culture, uh, the, the European values uh, are uh, the classical music. Mozart, Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, uh, the, the European values. Uh, it goes beyond values. pleasures of the ear, though. He also objects to uh, mixing tastes. The foods, the European foods, uh, for example, the doner uh, kebab uh, in Berlin, Budapest. Uh, I would like to eat the doner kebab in Istanbul. We're, we're spending a half a billion dollars on a fence to keep out doner kebabs? <laughs> um, you know, um, we need this uh, border fence uh, uh, to preserve um, um, our, um, our safe country. In the same town, we found Shandor Naj, who's part of the mayor's posse patrolling for migrants. You might think he would be precisely the kind of person to benefit from the family protection plan. After all, he and his wife moved from Budapest to raise their eight children in this pastoral paradise. But he's excluded. Not enough savings to qualify. This really helps families if they have enough capital and their own money, he says. But I think there are many families in the country who do not have their own basic capital, and the plan cannot help them. And they are not alone. Other Hungarians have found themselves ineligible because they are gay, unmarried, divorced. Read the fine print and this becomes clear. The Family Protection Plan only seeks to protect what the government sees as the right kinds of families. Prime Minister Orban seldom speaks to Western media, but we did speak with Secretary of State Katalin Novak, who says the plan is entirely consistent with Hungarian values. We even speak about not only preserving uh, Western uh, civilization, we also do say it openly that Christian uh, culture we would Christian like to culture. preserve. Yeah, that's the way of life in Europe, in Hungary, that we have a Christian way of life. When you hear your colleagues in government, including the Prime Minister, talk about ethnic homogeneity and the dangers of, of mixing blood and purity, can you see how people perhaps don't hear echoes of some of Europe's darker chapters in those remarks? It makes me upset because I think that means that uh, people who, who, who have this interpretation either don't really know what they are talking about or don't know Hungary. That's and you're, you're saying there's no code in that? There, there's no code when we talk about keep hungry Hungarian or pure Hungarians and we talk in terms of purity, there's no But again, you no say messaging. pure Hungarian. Why, what, we don't say that. We say keep Hunga Hungary Hungarian. That's true. We say that. While more than 100,000 couples have already taken advantage of the incentives, it's too early to tell whether the family protection plan will actually be effective. Whether it will cause the desired population bounce or deepen a rift in Hungary, much like the Danube cleaves Budapest. Government statistics released last month indicate that from January to April of 2020, there was an increase of 5.5% in the number of babies born in Hungary. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
Rodeo might just be America's original pastime. It started with an event called Saddle Bronc in the Old West. Today, there's one name that dominates Saddle Bronc, the rights. Like every sport in America, rodeo has been disrupted by the coronavirus pandemic. But when we first brought you this story in November, there were nine members of the Wright family riding the circuit, and they ranked among the best in the world. In a sport with plenty of wannabe cowboys, as you'll see and hear, the Wrights are the real deal, vestiges of the American frontier. Their lifestyle has prepared them for what's been called one of the last blue-collar sports in America. In Saddlebronk, there are no Tom Brady salaries, and there are regular injuries that would make running backs flinch. And yet none of that discourages the rights. Each generation seems to be better than the last. Tonight, you'll meet America's first family of rodeo, competing for glory on horseback the right way. Anybody heard of the rights in the bronc riding? You may not have heard of the rights before. They are a Utah sensation. But at rodeos big and small across the country, like this one in Utah, that last name is as famous as Manning or Montana. And there are just about enough rights to field their own football team. It is the right night at the rodeo. Nine professional cowboys with five world titles among them. There's Ryder Wright. Ryder. Come on, Ryder. The youngest world champion of all time and at 21, currently sitting in first place. Hey, we've been watching all of the rights. His uncle is this guy. All right. Spencer Wright, another world champion. That was incredible. Yeah, he did awesome. And in a league of his own, Cody Wright, the one who started the family dynasty 20 years ago. At 42, Cody's a two-time world champion and one of the best bronc riders ever. What's that feel like? Adrenaline, a little bit of fear, and you got to learn how to control it. You know, otherwise, you know, it'd go to heck pretty quick. Here's Stetson Wright. In Saddle Bronc, the goal is to hang on with style for eight seconds. Yeah. Wow. To a horse specially bred to buck you off. Can you explain to us what's going on in, in that eight seconds? Let's go to Cody Wright. You've got a rein you hang on to. You need to lift on it because that's what holds you down in the saddle. When they jump and kick, you know, they're stretched out, their feet are off the ground. You want to be stretched out, you know, your free arms straight back and your feet set as high in the neck as you can get them. It's like one hell of a rocking horse. It can be the roughest ride in the world if you're out of time, or it can be the smoothest ride in the world. So are you, are you kind of dancing with the horse? I, I like to think you are. I dance a lot better with a horse than I do with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't got no rhythm. The Wrights and the Broncos they're randomly paired with are partners in the rodeo. Both have to perform well to get a good score from the judges. When it's go time, the Wrights, the sons and brothers, crowd around the chute like a NASCAR pit crew, helping each other saddle up. This is a team sport for you guys. I think so. I love it. 
<laughs> There's nobody I'd rather see do better, but don't, don't think that I ain't trying to beat them. We all show up to the rodeo wanting to win first, but, and we're, but we're going to help each other do it, too. That's Jake Wright, Cody's younger brother and one of his toughest competitors. And yes, there are more brothers. Jake's twin, Jesse, a brother-in-law, Coburn Bradshaw, plus Alex, Calvin, Stuart, and Spencer Wright. We're like a big support group. You know, there's 10 of the best bronc riders right in the world right here. We all get together and practice. Everybody focus. And I know that's why we all have been so successful at what we do. All that practice has propelled them to the national finals rodeo in Las Vegas. It's the Cowboy Super Bowl. Spencer Wright, he's got a great ride going. And Team Wright has made it every year for the last decade and a half. Cody has won the champion's gold buckle twice. He showed us that we could do it with a little hard work and a lot of try. If he would have never even pursued rodeo, I wonder what the rest of us would even be doing. <laughs> what they're doing comes at a steep cost. While these horses are rarely injured, that can't be said for the rights. They all have the same orthopedic surgeon on speed dial. Can I see a show of hands of how many of you have been injured? So all of you have been injured. And two of you came into this interview on crutches. <laughs> three of us. <laughs> Tell me some of the injuries. I think the worst was my back when I broke my back in Omaha. Fractured my skull. I broke my nose about ten times. I broke all the sinuses on this right side of my face one time and had a brain bleed. As far as injuries goes, I think I'm one of the lucky ones sitting here. Do you hear yourself? Brain bleed? <laughs> and you call that lucky? Hurts a lot less than heartache, Bill. <laughs> but heartache won't land you in the hospital. The Wright boys are well aware every ride could be their last. Stewart came close. I said, let's go, and horse reared up and hit my head, kind of knocked me a little senseless, and I fell off into the arena. He just jumped straight up and fell completely on me. I thought it broke my back because I just felt my ribs pop as he landed on me. And I was like, oh, my gosh. As awful as that may sound, the rights say the hardest part of the job is being away from home. What did they tell Alex last time he went to the doctor? They're on the road around 250 days a year, clocking 100,000 miles in these, what they call rodeo motels. This weekend you're going to Herndon and Fort Pier or vice versa. Where they eat, sleep, and drive from Canada to the Mexican border, chasing eight-second dreams. Do you sometimes feel like you're on the road more times than you're on a horse? Do you drive 22, 24 hours from home to there, and we're there an hour and turn around and drive them back? <laughs> We drive for a living, ride bucking horses for fun. <laughs> when they aren't on the road, home is southern Utah. They mostly grew up in Milford, a no-stoplight town where the rights are the main attraction. They're a family of 13 kids, kept in line by their parents, Bill and Evelyn. That's a huge family. It's a good-sized family. Kids are kind of Moorish, you know. The more you get, the more you want. She trained the older ones to help the younger ones. I had to organize them. <laughs> but she... I'm like, 
<laughs> I cannot do this on my own or else it's going to be bad because mom's going to grow bear hair and you're not going to like it. All right, quit it. The right kids were cowboys playing cowboys and were natural ranch hands. It kept them out of Evelyn's hair and out of trouble. The seven boys and six girls knew how to ride a horse before they could pedal a bike. Some of the girls rodeoed too, but never went pro. They learned how to break horses early, how to ride and tame horses and train them. I think you have to be a cowboy before you can be a rodeo cowboy. The ranch was their training ground. The family has been working this land at the edge of Zion National Park for more than a century and a half. I'm five generations. Cody's six and Rusty's seven and his boy is eight generations. Bill, do you think the right family will be ranching this land in another 150 years? Well, I hope so. I really do. When you work as hard on something as I have at this, you don't want to see it just go away. What keeps their way of life going are rituals like this. Branding day. Bill and his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren gather every year to round up, vaccinate, and brand their cattle. The hard work brings them together. It defines them on the ranch and in the arena. Dad's the first one to preach that you get out of it what you put into it, and if he's seen you putting something into it, they were both behind you, and it didn't matter if they had to sell the, the farm. They was going to get you there. They sacrifice a, a lot for you to reach your dream. I think so. Um, this cowboy gets emotional because he knows exactly how much his parents gave up when he was starting out in a family where money was tight. We went to Gillette, Wyoming to the national finals and I had like 10 kids. He comes back from the expo and he said, I bought Cody a saddle. I'm like, what? It was only $1,100. I'm like, what? <laughs> you did what? I, was so, I started crying. I'm like, he's like, we got to help him. We got to support him. He's going to lose his dream if we don't. And that, what do you say to that? Well, thanks for coming. These days, Cody may be living his dream, but it hasn't exactly made him rich, considering cowboys have to foot the bill for just about everything. I really like rodeos. <laughs> if you're rodeoing full-time and going to, you know, 100 rodeos, you've got to make over sixty or 70000 just to break even. So you could go through all this and go to a rodeo and walk away with nothing. Yeah, you could walk away in the red. Less than nothing. <laughs> Less than nothing. So surely there are easier ways to make a living. You'd think so. But better? I, I don't know. Still, the sport has taken a toll on Cody's body and his family. He's spending less time in the arena now and more time on the ranch. Reach back with and in the practice pen, leading the next generation to carry on the right legacy. Sons Ryder, Rusty, Stetson, who are already rising stars, and the youngest, Statler. 
We were there the day Cody coached his 16-year-old on his very first bronc ride. Statler, right there, lift hard and take a hold of him. Well, I was like super nervous until I got in there, and then I just pretty much forgot about everything else but what my dad's taught me. That ride, how'd that feel? I hurt my butt, <laughs> actually a lot. But as soon as I hit the ground, I wanted to do it again. One Hall of Famer told us that you guys have the potential to be the best there ever was. I think we could do it, but really that's kind of... Humbling. Humbling and lights fire. A fire, they say, to win those gold buckles just like their dad, Cody. You know, I wanted a gold buckle, but to ride every horse the best I could was always what did it for me, you know. Sure, I want money. Who don't? You, you need it to go along, but I always just wanted to ride Bronx. It was striving to make that perfect ride, and, you know, the, the feeling that you feel when you're in time with a, a horse that's trying to get you off their back as hard as they can. Have you ever had a perfect ride? No, I've never had a perfect ride. <laughs> when I make that perfect ride, I'm going to be done. <laughs> After our story aired, the family added one more world championship to its collection. Stetson Wright won his first gold buckle for all-around cowboy at the National Finals Rodeo in December. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Bill Whitaker. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.